Hello and welcome to episode 140 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And uh, if this is your first episode, welcome. Um, we've just had a series of episodes speaking to industry experts, agents, editors, even Hollywood managers. Uh, and Going further back, we've spoken to some amazing authors and screenwriters. We've spoken to people like Joe Abercrombie, Fonda Lee, Ed MacDonald, Alex Garland. So please do check out the back catalogue. Um, I'm sure you'll find some names of interest in there. But this week, we're kicking off this new batch of episodes with a really great guest. Yeah, this week we're chatting with the awesome Scott Lynch, who is a fantasy author, and his debut novel is The Lies of Locke Lamoura which uh, is one of Marco's favourite ever books. And, uh, it's yeah, a, it is. It's genuinely. It's a really, it's a really fantastic chat. And, and Scott's had a really interesting route into the industry, um, which is I think maybe the only person we've spoken to with this kind of unusual route. And, and another great example of how, how you create your own luck in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he, he tells us all about it, um, how he was discovered. And, you know, he, in in many ways, his rise was kind of viewed as this sort of precocious youth with a great breakthrough success because he yeah. was first published when he was twenty six. Yeah. But as he tells us, that was after ten years of hard work as a writer. Yeah. So, um, even when it looks like someone's had this massive breakthrough from nowhere, there's always a big pile of bo- big body of work behind that yeah. that gets you yeah. to that there's position. No such thing as a as a true overnight success, I think there's always no. a background there. And and yeah, as you said, Tarek, Liza Lockemore is genuinely one of my favourite books. It's a it's probably the book that got me back into fantasy as an adult reader. Um, you know, it's it's just brilliant character set in this really interesting world that sort of mirrors a medieval Venice in some way, with a smattering of magic a- across the top. And uh, you know, I've seen it build as sort of Ocean's Eleven. Uh, the the fantasy version and it does have that whole heist element to it as well which makes it a really compelling read but you know we talked to Scott all about it, how he came up with the character Locke Lamora and also I know if you're a Scott Lynch fan you'll be eagerly awaiting this we talked to him about what's coming next because we have been waiting for the fourth book in the series Thorn of Emberlane for some time he talks to us about that when, you know what we can expect from that and when and also about uh, three novellas set in the in that world that will be coming out. He hoped that the first one would be coming out uh, in the coming year. So, you know, really exciting news and just a really interesting and, and fun guy to speak with. But we'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook. And then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is... Write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? 
And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Because I think I read that you wanted to be a musician or a comic book artist when you were younger. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I uh I I went through every phase. I mean, I mean, yes, I, I wanted to be a writer for a very long time, long before I knew what that meant. Um, you know, back when I was a kid, uh, I wanted to write um, uh, choose your own adventure novels. Yeah. That was the uh, the height of of literature as far as my seven yeah. or eight year old self was concerned. <laughs> so I knew that I wanted to write books, but I also wanted to be a cartoonist, and I also wanted to drive a truck, and I also wanted to fly F fifteens. <laughs> um, and then when I when I hit my my teen years, I kind of focused on uh, comic books for a couple of years. And I, I had this fantasy that I was also going to be a musician, uh, which was completely scuppered by the fact that I have no musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> um, and that, that that was, yeah, that was that was the the pipe dreamiest of pipe dreams. I, I can't, uh, I, I simply can't. I, I love music, but I'm not equipped to uh, produce it. So uh, I, I spent a couple of years thinking that I was going to be a comic book self-publisher. Um, and this is, this is many, many years ago now when that was a, that was a, a hip and cool thing to be rather than a fairly standard sort of yeah. thing to be. And uh, that was so that was my my teenage rock and roll rebellion dream was to get into the lucrative field of self-publishing black and white comic books. But um, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, um, my, my artistic focus, I, I kind of hit a a I hit a plateau with my illustration and B, I didn't have uh, the discipline required to get myself off of it. So I just kind of lazied myself into plan B, which was writing, which I, I could actually stick to and, you know, actually do for 10 to 12 hours at a time and, and you know, complete big projects in, in a way that I could not uh, finish uh, art projects when I was a teenager. So uh, you, you could say that, yes, out, out of sheer lack of talent, and sheer lack of discipline, I, I did land very firmly in the camp of, gee, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I, I, I was fortunate to to like a lot of things, I suppose, and, and to to still end up doing one that I really, really wanted to. Yeah. I mean, if I there are li relatively more limited slots for things like astrophysicists in the world. So, you know, I, I didn't choose a particularly demanding career path in some respects. 
And and when was it that that you kind of went from thinking, oh, this is actually what I'd like to do, to thinking actually I can turn this into a an actual job. I can make a living off this. You know, what 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 was the, the, the kind of thought process there? Uh, I think it was uh, it was probably about age fifteen. I, I mean, you know, one thing has always been true, and I'm going to try not to. I, I'm going to try not to have this sound as as mystical or as highfalutin. I I always knew that I was going to be a creator. <laughs> you know, Garth Marenghi, shaman, dreamweaver, visionary, <laughs> and author. Um, but I, I I always wanted to make stuff. I always knew that making stuff was going to be it since a very young age. It's just that uh, what the stuff that I was going to make uh, would end up being was always kind of in a state of flux mm-hmm. um, until it was I was I was about 15. 15 is when I uh, started reading 14, 15 is when I started reading um, a lot more adult science fiction. That's when I moved on into uh, science fiction and fantasy from uh what I had been reading up to that point was largely Doctor Who novelizations, right. and then um, you know the Doctor Who new adventures because I was a, uh, I, I I was a weird little American boy who fell in love with this weird little British television program um, when I was, was it, about was ten it or easy eleven. To watch in the US at that time. Uh, well, it was it was on PBS all the time, and right. you know I, I'd seen it here and there. And sorry, this is the briefest of segues. I'll get get back to the actual point <laughs> of the question in a moment. Um, I did not actually fall in love with the program by watching it on TV. I uh, I found the novelizations at my local public library. So I had this uh this entire summer when I was about 11 where I just plowed through uh you know all these these target novelizations from 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, so I I built up this this weird image of what the show looked like in my head. And then eventually I started watching it when uh, PBS started airing all the Tom Baker episodes again. And it looked nothing like yeah. the, the Doctor Who universe in my head. And it took yeah. some some reconciliation, but I did eventually come to love it. Um, but th- those were kind of my, my my gateway to a lot of literature. And then I branched out from there into the uh, the New Adventures novels in the very early 90s. And from there into, you know, adult science fiction, uh, you know, Dune, Neuromancer, The Forever War. Um, yeah. And I started reading a lot more Stephen King, and I eventually got into fantasy by way of uh, people like Ray Feist. Um, so I knew, uh, even if I was still deluding myself, by the time I was about 15, that I was probably not going to make it in the comic book field. Um, but writing was was probably going to be it. Yeah. And so in, in, in fits and starts half realizing what I was doing. Um, that's what I, I, I focused on and started trying to move forward with. And, uh, you know, it, it, it only took 11 more years after that. I mean, that's the thing. I sold my first novel when I was 26, um, which, you know, which usually elicits groans of, Ooh, you were, you were such a prodigy. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> um, you know, that, that's the part everybody's interested in, you know, Ooh, yeah. sell a novel in your twenties, but nobody wants to hear the part about how, you know, that was an 11 year interregnum from deciding that I was going to be a writer to actually becoming a writer, which is actually not that vast an interregnum as far as those things go. I mean, nobody wants to hear about the the lengthy period of time you spend sucking and failing to, uh, you know, to actually acquire minimal competence at what you're trying to do. Um, so so, yeah, I was uh, I was still lackadaisical and undisciplined and unfocused in a lot of ways, but I was blessed to kind of realize mostly what i wanted to do and to sort of start lurching toward it at a relatively young age and and when you were doing that lurching um were you were you trying to get things published at that time before 
um, Lies came along? You know, did you, was there any other novels before that that you tried? You to know, uh, I I was I I, I was and I. Uh... I, I had this notion back when I was a teenager, back when I was in my early twenties, that there was uh, that there was a, a distinct plan and a progression of events that had to take place. That first, you know, I was going to do, you know, like fan work reviews, mm-hmm. etc. I wrote a bunch of reviews for a gaming website, you know, God, a quarter century ago now. And I thought that, you know, okay, that's the that's the first part completed. And next I'm going to start doing, you know, freelance jobs for uh, tabletop role playing companies and I'll do freelance editing and then I'm going to write and sell short stories and then I'll sell a novella and then I'll work my way up. Like I, I imagined that the path was a clear progression. You know, like mm-hmm. like video game levels yeah. from, you know, little little pieces to, to bigger pieces. And then the a, a that is bullshit. That's not what needs to happen. And that's definitely not what happened to me. Um, I mean, it was it was a full five years between selling my first novel and selling my first short story professionally thereafter. I, I, I you know, there it's it's easy to say, oh, I, I did things ass backwards. But, you know, the fact is that there there is no formula to follow. There's no path to take. There's nothing to take backwards yeah. or forwards. It's it's you, you do what you do, you know, whenever you get there. An awful lot of brilliant writers have, uh, uh, you know, sold their first novels in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And a lot of brilliant writers stopped writing as teenagers. You know, every time I feel particularly accomplished, I, I think of, uh, you know, Arthur Rimbaud, uh, one of my favorite poets. Stopped writing poetry when he was 17, the fucker. Uh, <laughs> pardon my language, but, uh, you know, it, it's it, you, um, you, you must sort of conceive the notion. There was a metaphor that somebody used uh, in conversation this summer that I really, really liked. Uh, you, in order to preserve as much of your sanity as you possibly can, you kind of have to, to conceive the notion that you're not in competition with anybody else. I mean, in, in a certain sense, you are. But in an absolute sense, like in an artistic sense and in a sales sense, you're, you're not actually in competition with anybody else because nobody else can have your precise career. Nobody else can make your precise artistic impact. It's mm-hmm. not like playing football. It's like playing golf mm-hmm. because in, in golf, there's a score, but you can't physically interfere with what anybody else is doing. Um, so ultimately, you are just playing in an effort to better yourself and do better than you did last time and that that's that's the only sane and sensible path to build in your head toward whatever uh you want to be writing or you want to be producing in the world so i was i was i was dead wrong and the thing is i I don't know if it set me back because it's not like i was producing a huge volume of brilliant uh unheralded material at the time but um you know i i I clung very tenaciously to this idea that there was a that there was a shape and that there was a procedure to be followed and i was going to follow it and that ended up being completely inaccurate yeah well i was going to ask about about that because i I think i'm right in saying that that your sort of breakthrough i suppose was that you were discovered by an editor on a writing forum is that is that correct uh yes i um even the story of my, 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 my breakout success is a story of failure because um, I had uh, – it's, it's, it's interesting to me. 2004 was an interesting year literarily, and I didn't realize this until recently. Um, Stephen King uh, – I'll put myself in the same boat as Stephen King. Um, <laughs> long-suffering fan of the Boston Red Sox, uh, you know, a team that 
up until 2004, had not won a World Series for 86 years, had been widely perceived as laboring under a curse. And so, you know, being a fan of a team like that is, you know, partly a labor of love. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's something you wear on your sleeve. You know, I am, I am a sad sack and I love these sad sacks and we are all sad sacks together. So he set out to write a book about, you know, his year in the bleachers with a buddy of his and what it's like to be, you know, hard scrabble put upon uh, sad sack fans of a sad sack team that's never going to win. And then the weirdest thing happened. Uh, The team won. Um, that that was the year that they they broke the eighty six year curse, and it just happened to be in the middle of Stephen King writing a book about how they were never going to break the curse and what it was like, <laughs> you know, loving losers. So I had uh, evolved sort of the same notion. Um, <laughs> sorry, this sounds really grandiose in parallel to Stephen King's project. Um, I started something called uh, a blog called Newbie Writes a Novel. Um, and the idea was that, uh, you know, I, I'd been pushed by a couple friends of mine, including a guy that I talk about a great deal, uh, a writer named Matthew Woodring Stover. Um, I'd been pushed to uh, pay more attention to actually producing prose and actually working on the novel and uh, to, to move from that one day I'm going to phase to, hey, I finished a manuscript. Yeah. And so I thought the blog would be the ideal format for this. And I framed it as, you know, newbie writes a novel. Watch my my uh, watch the futility and the comedy of me trying and failing. And I expected that this thing was going to go on for years and years and years. And it lasted four entries Um, because on the on the fourth entry, I posted an excerpt of the novel and the aforementioned editor, Simon Spanton, um, was pointed to it by a mutual acquaintance of ours. And on the strength of uh, glancing at that, gave me a call and said, you know, I'd really like to see what else you have to offer. So my my brilliant bohemian uh, sort of, you know, Gen X irony drenched comic escapade to uh, not sell a novel accidentally sold a novel. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's quite an, is it an unusual way around because you kind of found the publisher before you found the agent which is i guess the traditional way that most people would go about it you know i mean how did that yes and you know it 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 is and it isn't because uh, god okay there's a lot to break down here at the time that my first novel was pub was was bought because my first novel was published in 2006 bought in 2004 Mm -hmm. so this information is now 18 years old Mm -hmm. um and in some respects the market hasn't changed a bit and in some respects there have been massive sea changes but some of this is, is still very applicable but at the time uh the notion of purchasing a manuscript based upon fragment uh seen online was simultaneously still very rare, but it was kind of a, a, a micro trend for a couple of months. I think there there were two or three of us. I think uh, John Scalzi also sold one of his early works uh, based upon online excerpts, although I, I would add the caveat that I think John had the entire work posted online. Okay. And John also had, you know, something like a 10-year uh, history of, you know, delivering uh, reviews and and other material, uh, you know, to deadline, um, and you know, and had a lengthy publication history. So he had, he had other credentials that made that less of a of a gamble. 
And it didn't really happen again for a while. And, you know, it's 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 one of those things that publishers, I, I suppose, are, are wise to kind of be shy about because you don't want to invite the entire world to just fling manuscripts at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because the, the logistical uh, and social difficulty of sorting through piles of manuscripts is difficult enough um, when you do it in the traditional fashion, when you sift through, uh, you know, piles of paper coming across the transom or you you sift through piles of email in your inbox. Mm-hmm. Um, any given publishing house, even a big one, only has a certain number of people available to do this on a continual basis. Um and it, it, you know, it can just it can it can become an insurmountable challenge. I've read slush at a couple publishers, and um, it's uh, <laughs> it's 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 curious stuff. It's interesting stuff. I can see why people get very excited when they pull gems out of the gigantic yeah. pile. Yeah. Um, however, with the caveat that it's you know you you can see why they don't necessarily encourage it, and you can see why um, it is still a rare thing. Every editor that I've talked to, every acquiring editor will tell you some variation of the same thing, which is that I'm not required to put my hands in my pocket and whistle innocently and ignore it if I see something that's really, really, really interesting. Um, you know, one of the, one of the editors that I've never worked with, who's just a friend of mine, once upon a time said something to the effect of, you know, I I run an acquisitions desk. I don't run a a blind judged, um, you know, Olympic sport. Uh, I I don't have to give everyone a fair shake, mm-hmm. um, and I I don't have to ignore good. St- I mean that 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 sounds harsh. I don't have to give everyone a fair shake. Editors are very interested in giving people a fair shake because they want to buy good stuff. But what he was saying was that he was not obligated to ignore exciting things if he yeah. saw them. Um, yeah. He was not obligated to not go out and buy them. So uh, the editor who saw my stuff online went to his purchasing committee and said, I know this is a bit unusual, um, but I think there really might be something here. Um and, you know, the cold, hard business aspect of it is we should jump on this before somebody else preempts this and, and, and gets it before we do. Um but the leap of faith aspect of it is, you know, I think that there's artistic validity here. I think there's a book that's going to sell. And I actually trust that this weird American that I don't know personally is going to actually be able to finish a novel and add another 600 pages to this fragmentary manuscript that I'm looking at. So it's 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 a fraught and it's a complex process. And I, I hope that I've done some justice to it. And I, I, I hope that I've, I've explained it in such a way that what I've said won't be taken out of context to say, aha, aha, editors, editors have no interest in being nice to people. Editors have every interest in, in being nice to people and every interest in being excited by what they find. They are, they are desperately thirsty to be excited by what comes their way unexpectedly. No, that, that, that's definitely true. And yeah, we've had, we've spoken to some editors as well. And that, that comes, that very much comes across and, you know, it was obviously though quite a big gamble from from uh, Simon Spanton's point of view in the sense that it was just the fragment that you had you hadn't I'm right in saying that you hadn't finished it or anything at that point it wasn't just that you were posting an excerpt it was that you literally <laughs> hadn't written it, no, at it that was point. yeah it was it was it was um you know metaphorically speaking hot off the press uh, yeah. I mean you know the ink was not yet dry I'd uh I'd written um, I mean, the, the thing that had happened was that uh, in 2001, 2002, um, I, I started making my living mostly doing 
uh, freelance and self-published uh, role-playing game stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's when uh, Dungeons and Dragons Third Edition had just come out with a license that allowed people to produce third-party support material for it. So there was a big new market for that, and you know, I was at the time, you know, twenty-three, twenty-four. I, you know, I lived on nothing. I had no health issues. I wasn't married. I didn't own a car. You know, so I could live on table scraps, which is good because table scraps is what it paid. Um, but it was, you know, it was exciting to get those table scraps. They were mine, mm-hmm. but what that process taught me the, the couple of years I spent doing that, I, I, I assembled one extremely large project, uh, a large electronic role-playing book that I had to, you know, edit myself and lay out myself in Quark Express. And I had to proofread it myself and copy it at myself and build the table of contents and build the index and, uh, Basically, once I'd done that, I, I'd, I'd accidentally acquired the skill set to construct a lengthy project. Um, and I found that after I'd done that and I returned to fiction, previously I had just been churning out, you know, a page and then throwing it away and another page and throwing it away. You know, I I started writing The Lies of Locke Lamora about 100 times. There were literally 100 false starts. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I mean, some of them are just a paragraph and it's it would, it would become so obvious on the first page. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea where I was going. I didn't know what anything added up to. And after I, I constructed this extremely large, less prosical, uh, somewhat boring you know if you know what i mean document that required a lot of indexing um structure the notion of structure had sunk into my brain a little bit better yeah and all of a sudden i was able to write uh what basically almost verbatim what became the prologue to the lies of Locke lamora it's almost all there on the page uh to this day that's what i posted and that's what attracted simon's attention um and when he called me and said do you have anything else i said uh Sure, maybe. And I wrote the first chapter as as fast as I could. Just a white hot heat of desperation. Just boom. Mm-hmm. And I handed that into him and he said, well, this is also great. Um, what else do you have? And I said, nothing. Literally nothing. I wrote that last night. There's nothing else. <laughs> That's it's as fast as it comes. And, uh, you know, he said, well, let me get back to you. And after a couple of days, he, he did. You know, they, they decided to uh, to take the gamble. And, uh, you know, it worked out the way it did. Yeah, and- uh, which I, I absolutely love Lies and Lamora. It's genuinely one of my favorite books. So I'm glad they did take that gamble. Thank you. And it was you know, it was not always smooth sailing. I mean, the thing is, is that having sold the novel, all I then had to do was learn how to actually write a novel. And even even knowing how structure worked at that point, even knowing what I wanted to do. I mean, we had a we had a very optimistic schedule for it. And it, it still took about five months longer than I expected. Like the book was originally slotted for an optimistic late 2005 publication and, you know, wound up going to su- early summer of 2006. So, you know, there, there was a bit of a slip, but I feel it was a, it was a very understandable first time slip. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. And, and where did the actual, where did the concept for the book come from? Was it something that had been bubbling away? In, I mean, it, it sounds like it was. You'd started it all these times. The, the idea, was it the character or was it the whole story? What was bubbling away first in your head for, for a while? You know, it was uh, it was a whole set of different ideas as I was kind of casting about for, you know, what do I want to write? What do I want to make? And, um, you know, I, I would just have this intermittent stream of ideas that I would I would look at and I would say, 
okay, but if I adjusted this, it would be more interesting. And then, you know, one by one, very steadily over the course of a couple of years, I mean, what I, what I started, I, I started with the notion that I wanted to, you know, I wanted to write a con artist. I wanted to write somebody who was, uh, uh, socially adept and, and physically, uh, in trouble, uh, which is, which is Locke basically, um, Believe it or not, I'd I'd uh, I'd, I'd played. Well, you, you have to believe it because I'm saying it. But no, this is uh, <laughs> this is one of those those fun things that happened. Um, sometime around late 1999 or early 2000, I briefly played uh, a Star Wars role playing game. Uh, that was the uh, uh, not the not the original West End Games version, but the Wizards of the Coast version. Mm-hmm. Um, which is now the which is now two or three Star Wars games in the past. Yeah. Uh, it's it's now games archaeology, uh, but they had this this thing called a Force Adept, which was sort of an informally uh, someone who's gifted with the Force but has never received uh, the formal training of a Jedi or a Sith. So they 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 could do interesting stuff rather than uh, you know sharp and deadly and devastating stuff. And I, I conceived of the notion of, you know, what if there was this planet uh, that was sort of out of the way and had always managed to be out of the way uh, for the duration of galactic history? Like, no matter what happened, rise of the Sith, rise of the Republic, rise of the Empire, fall of the Republic, etc., um, they'd always just managed to avoid the worst of everything that was going on because there was this tiny little group of sort of a cross between con artists and secret agents um provocateurs as it were that were sort of out and about in the galaxy finessing affairs to make sure that this little planet never got trampled under the boots of bigger galactic uh trouble so the character i played was one of these agents and his name was Locke. Uh, and that was, that was the, the first iteration of the character that became Locke Lamora. We only played the game for like three sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I sort of transported the concept into my, my, my slowly coming to life notion for a fantasy novel. Um, and one of the original conceptions was that Locke would have some kind of magic power. And I, I decided at a fairly early stage that I was going to ditch all of that, that the concept of Locke being hypnotic or having the ability to magically turn himself invisible just was not what I was after. I, I wanted uh, a narrative in which the protagonists were uh, less uh, resourceful uh, when it came to the supernatural than most of their antagonists were. Mm. Um, and we're just kind of stuck to make their way in a in a world that is, uh, you know, relatively full of, of hostile and mysterious magic and other things. Um, and I found that that just that that interested me so much more. Also, the uh, the setting was originally more what you might call a high classic European medieval, um, you know, 13th century sort of setting. And I, I rapidly realized that that was not what I was interested in for this and that I needed um well, I needed a world that was more um, socially and economically open. I needed, uh, you know, I, I I did not need to be in the 13th century. I needed to be in the 15th, 16th, 17th. I needed that uh, that level of social mobility, that mm-hmm. level of uh, 
you know, it, because somebody like Locke just you, you can't exist in the same way in a society that is too closed off, uh, that doesn't have enough paperwork, that doesn't have enough cubby holes for people yeah. to get lost in. You know, it's it's very difficult to be, uh, you know, I've used this this uh, example before. It, it would be very difficult to be, uh, you know, a con artist, a traditional con artist living amongst, you know, like the Rohirrim. Uh, yeah. in, in, in Middle Earth, because everybody knows everybody and everybody's social status is based on their relationship to everybody else. And it's very difficult to just walk in and say, hello, I'm Glamdwong, cousin of Gromdor. And, you know, Gromdor is right over there and he's never heard of you. Uh, so the world's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be looser than that. It's got to have places to hide. So so basically, um, the form of what I wrote uh, evolved out of the necessity of all the stuff that I found interesting. Um, and then just, you know, a healthy dose of, of all of the, uh, you know, this is, a a notion that Stephen Bruce has, uh, which I think he calls the, uh, the awesome shit theory of literature, which is that the ultimate purpose of literature, uh, apart from, you know, any art or craft you cram into it is to put as much awesome shit as the author desires, uh, into as small, a, a page space as possible. Uh, so, you know, obviously I, I'm really enamored of the whole aesthetic of, uh, you know, people in cloaks running around rooftops, stabbing each other with daggers, you know, at midnight. I, I just, I think that's, that's absolutely great and hilarious fun. And so, you know, I wanted my, wanted my work to be absolutely drenched in the aesthetic of, uh, you know, that sort of thing yeah. of, uh, you know, tavern brawls and rogues in the shadows and mysterious figures running away in the alleyways, you know, all, all those, those classic tropes and classic cliches. And it's funny because, the setting is often um, compared to kind of fantasy version of Venice. And it was that always the kind of image you had in your mind when you were creating the story or is that something which kind of came organically as you were writing? Well, I did. Um, you know, I mean, I, I did eventually conform some aspects of Camor to Venice, you know, once I, because, you know, partway through the, the creation process at some point I realized, Hey, wait, wait a minute. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm basically recreating Venice. So I thought I would, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, make some of the parallels a little more obvious. I didn't want to just do Venice with the serial numbers filed off. But, you know, it's a yeah. it's a city of islands and canals that will, you know, yeah. if if Locke's world lasts long enough, eventually have a major subsidence and flooding problem. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it did seem to fit. And it's, it's one of those things where it's it's like this is. Uh, you know, the Theron world is an analog of, of basically the entire Mediterranean world. You know, the Therans are Italian and French and Greek and Moroccan and, you know, basically, uh, you know, a hodgepodge and Spanish and a hodgepodge of all of this. And um, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd been thinking consciously of other uh, Italian city-states of, of the late medieval period in the Renaissance, um, you know, Genoa and Florence mm -hmm. in particular. And, you know, I, I guess it was just one of those blind spots. It's like, hey, wait a minute. You know, I, you've been researching Florence. You've been researching Genoa. You got pictures of Florence all over the damn place. Have you not noticed that uh, you're actually writing Venice? Oh, duh. So it, it was uh, it was a bit of, you know, a serendipitous parallel that I that I, I then leaned into completely. I mean, there's uh, uh, other than the fact that, you know, Camorra is, is a bit Venice uh, there, there, there's really no uh, specific analog to any. I mean, you know, the the whole Theron throne situation has a little bit of a fallen Roman Empire feeling to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, except Rome wasn't blasted completely off the face of the earth. Um, 
you know, it, it remained a center of power in which, you know, things like the Vatican could spring up. Um, yeah, it, it uh, you know, Talvarar doesn't represent a specific city on earth. Emberlane doesn't represent a specific city on earth, though, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of it is borrowed bits and pieces from, uh, you know, the, the Dutch Republic of the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Um, you know, uh, Cyrune is not based on uh, anywhere in the real world. Uh, Jerem and Jerish and Ispara. And I mean, there's a there's a certain level of analog that I'm comfortable with. And there's a certain level that I'm not, yeah. you know, like if you it, I'm a huge Ray Feist fan. And I think that what he did was was simultaneously kind of cute and simultaneously not what I was really willing to do, which is that he's got his uh quasi european medieval landscape and it's it's dotted with cities and states and dukedoms and so on and so forth and some of them are very explicitly like this this is the place that represents france this is the place that yeah. represents germany this is the place that represents spain which is i mean i'm making this sound lazy i'm making this sound terrible for some reason it it's it's just his way of establishing this is how these linguistic groups and this is how these names and this is how these customs and these dress senses pop into this world because in this world they don't come from say france they come from bastira um and i thought it, that was it, it, neat it, it, but i wasn't willing to go that far i mean it, it can be helpful to readers as well in a way can't it because although you're creating this secondary world um if there are things that call back to the real world then that can help the reader jump into that world more easily if there if there are certain parallels between the real world and yeah. the secondary world it, oh, it, yeah. it helps with the world building massively i think if you can think well that's a bit like spain or that's a bit like venice or, or things like that i think it yeah you know whether whether you like it or not i mean as a as an as an artist and as a craftsperson um the real world is going to cast a shadow into your work yeah um and you can <laughs> you, you 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 need to accept that if you're going to be mentally healthy about it and you need to accept that some of it is going to be completely unconscious, but you can make a decision as to how you're going to consciously use it. You can make a decision as to how and when you're going to employ it. And uh, you might find that, I mean, just as, as you said, you know, you can you, you can borrow a lot of power from the mythic and historic precedents that exist in our own world. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there, there are hints of, of real world mythologies in, in Locke's world. There are, uh, you know, shadows of, of omens and there are metaphors and there are, you know, places that are obviously, that obviously draw strength from stuff that exists on our planet in our time. Um, and like I said, that that's unavoidable. So I'm kind of of the attitude of you might as well try to be conscious about it and careful about it mm -hmm. and and use it for that power uh, when you can get a little something out of it. And and I read actually recently you, you were having a, on Twitter a discussion with uh, Laura Lamb about the the financial system of the world. Uh, oh, yeah. You had clearly uh, gone into some depth in planning it because i think you said even in, the, in that conversation that it was just fun you enjoyed building out that that world uh, that world how the how the finance would work in that world and stuff do you think that part of your process has been you know you were working on these uh tabletop role-playing games and things like that do you think that has played an influence in, in how you structure your stories and, and create your world 
Oh, I mean, a- absolutely, absolutely. But the thing is, is that um, when, when when it comes to my work, I mean, when it comes to most of my fiction, I mean, the thing that I've discovered is that it's a process of, of actively and consciously decoupling uh, what I do in my fiction from the expectations of what's going on in a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Um, nine times out of ten, I mean, uh, unless players are consenting to play something that is deliberately obstreperous, that is deliberately complicated, um, you know, one copper piece, uh, uh, ten of those equals a silver piece, and ten silver pieces equals a gold piece, and ten gold pieces equals a platinum piece, and that's just the way it is. I mean, this is this is an abstract system that is designed to make things easy for players and game masters to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not how a realistic, you know, fictional world works. A realistic currency doesn't have a steady exchange rate. Um, and it doesn't come in, in easy to use denominations like that. And it can be maddeningly, um, you know, bizarre and archaic and, and influenced by a number of, of, uh, you know, idiosyncratic factors that are, you know, not the sort of thing that, you know, most people picking up a game book are really looking for. They're not, n- n- very few people pick up a Dungeons and Dragons manual and say, confuse me more. I want to know less about how to play this game. I want to be more irritated with all the tables in the back. I mean, there's, there's so much information there. There's so much to put across that, that basically if, if you want to include confusion and idiosyncrasy, um, as a as a fundamental aesthetic of the world, it's up to an individual game master to put that in. It's not really the, um, you know, it's not really the publisher's duty to supply that. And so I found that, you know, what it, what I need to do in writing my fiction is that I need to file all of that orderliness off the world, all right, of that, yeah. uh, you know, it, because the 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 assumption of a game is that you know on some level a, a game, even if it's a very difficult game has to have a certain degree of fairness or a certain degree of mm-hmm. access to fairness. Mm-hmm. You can get your hands on weapons. You can get your hands on armor. You can get your hands on money. Otherwise, you know, what's the point of playing the game? Uh, this is not necessarily true uh, in a realistic world. This is not necessarily true in, in Locke's fictional world. So all of those lovely little details that are so, you know, so orderly and so cleanly presented uh, in the form of a role-playing book are not actually conducive to the aesthetic that I want to bring across um, on, on the page. You know, someone who's living a story in what I consider to be a more realistic-ish uh, fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge, huge gamer. Uh, you know, I've been a tabletop gamer for <laughs> 30 years now. And uh, computer games, video games, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, video games are, are chock-full of notions that uh, support video games very adequately, but do not translate uh, sensibly to actual fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything about, uh, you know, how how currency works, how weapons work, how armor works, you know, how the world works. Um, you, I, 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 I would strongly caution anybody who wants to get into writing fiction on a serious basis, um, no matter how much you appreciate games, uh, disentangle yourself from their notions of logistics and um, sociology and uh, material culture um, and do more real world primary source research mm-hmm. um, or at least well researched secondary sources sources if you can don't don't rely upon video games because uh, video games are chock full of distortions 
definitely. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to turn that into a screed against video games, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, ideally you want to preserve the scent. Like, you know, it's it's all part and parcel because now we've uh, we've been living with role playing games for so long. Um, you know, uh, tabletop role playing games, you know, as a as a culture, an industry, a hobby, um, you know, just about. 50 years ish old at this mm -hmm. point um and so they, they've gone from being a very new thing to a sort of semi-talked about thing like when i broke into the publishing industry you know it was still sort of a hush hush thing like oh such and such used to game you know the, the open secret that you know george r, r. martin played champions uh china mieville played dungeons and dragons um matthew woodring stover played champions etc cetera, etc cetera. and now it's it's completely bog standard. It's normal for authors to uh, to play Dungeons and Dragons. And Lecky plays Dungeons and Dragons. Um, my wife founded the Dungeons and Dragons Club at her high school thirty five ish years ago. Um, you know, it, it it used to be the the thing that was not spoken of, and now it's just it's completely baked into the fabric of things. But the thing is, is is that uh, those games were designed imp you know imperfectly and incompletely to sort of simulate a literary experience. Mm -hmm. You know, wouldn't it be fun to be a character adventuring through a Jack Vance landscape, through a Robert E. Howard landscape, through a Tolkien landscape, or to put all of these landscapes in a blender and uh, you know spew them back into a game? And uh, so first you have, uh, you know, this you, you've got this this uh, entertainment that mimics an existing entertainment, but then you have new entertainments that mimic the entertainment that mimicked the entertainment. So, you know, the, the layers of influence become recursive and, you know, now sword and sorcery and uh, uh, role playing I and mean, role playing games have become baked into the fabric of our fundamental expectations for what a work of fantasy literature will do and what it will contain and what its characters will be about. I was actually, God, I was talking about this um, on another podcast recently, just the whole concept of, yeah, talking about Matthew Woodring Stover's work, just the whole concept of, you know, in, in a sensible fantasy world, in a, in, a, in a functional fantasy world, the idea that, that there's a, a career path called adventuring doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, you know, we, we have adventurers in our world. We call them mercenaries. You know, we call them yeah. sociopaths, looters, raiders, robbers. Um, you know, the, the idea that uh, that, you know, there's going to be a formalized path for picking up a sword and a shield and just going out into the world and beating people up and taking their stuff. Well, yes, we, we have those people, but they tend to get hung at crossroads. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a reputable thing to be, but. That is a format through which um, players at a table can readily experience, you know, a fictional fantasy world. The concept of the adventuring party, the concept of the uh, spell slinging freelancers. Um, and it's it's one of those things that it's like, yeah, borrow the positive energy, borrow the enjoyment, borrow the pleasure. But never forget to take a step back and examine all the assumptions of a world like that. Um, it's 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 harder than it looks to create a fantasy environment in which people behaving like gaming adventurers makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I've really only encountered it on a couple occasions done charmingly well. Um, and, and in order to do that, I think you sometimes you kind of have to give in and go all the way and embrace the madness uh, like uh, uh, Nicholas Ames is a, a writer who comes to mind when 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 I think about stuff like this. Um, you know, a, a writer who absolutely writes within the idiom of, uh, you know, a role playing type fantasy yeah. 
and succeeds um, simply by by committing to the bit 110 percent and going completely mm-hmm. wild with it. Yeah. Um, have I have I strayed too far from a coherent point? No, I, no, I, I don't no. mean to battle no. endlessly. <laughs> no, very interesting. Because I mean, I did want to ask about your your process. You know, what what is your writing style do you do you sit down and plan all this stuff out in advance do you kind of in terms of the world building or in terms of the actual story line where it's going do you do you do a lot of drafts you know what, what what's your routine um i am i'm a, i'm an intense planner uh yeah. I, I i i build up huge bodies of notes and i build up huge bodies of uh timelines and sketches and uh notions of where i want to go because i only work comfortably if i know where i want to go Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, a writer friend who once said that, uh, I mean, he, he's very much not, uh, not a plotter, not a planner. And he, he, he once said something to the effect of, in I have to write each novel to find out what each novel is about because I don't know when I start. And that sounds like such a romantic and fun discovery process. And I'm sure that it's amazing in its own right. And I can't do that. I would fling myself out a window. I would, I would engage in self-harm. I would, I I would, I would push the red button and nuke the world. I I can't, I can't function like that. Um, It sounds terrifying to me. I, I, yeah, I I cherish the thought of of being able to do that. Like I can do it on a smaller basis, Mm -hmm. um, but like, I can't do it with a lengthy project. I can't do it with a novel. I've got to have some idea that I, you know, it would make me feel like I was walking into a job interview, you know, wearing no pants and and not knowing what I was interviewing for. I just feel (laughs) completely, uh, you know, exposed to the world um, and vulnerable. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm an intense plotter and I, I always have been, but the thing is, uh, I, I think it's important to realize that, uh, no, no plan is going to survive lengthy contact with the little fuckers that you're writing about. If yeah. you're, if, if your characters are lively, if your characters are doing their job, it, it, it is, I, I don't mean to get mystical about it. I never mean to say like, oh, the characters write themselves. They have a life, a, a life of their own. Um, it is not that it's not it's not a mystical property of of the creative process. It is that by the time you spent, um, you know, X number of pages, X number of hours uh, writing these characters, um, opportunities that you did not previously see will suddenly become more obvious to you. You know, you, you're you trying to write from point A to point B to reach point Z and somewhere around, you know, point c you might realize that you can fruitfully branch off go do something else for a little bit then return to the design you intended and it's it's not that uh you know some magic has taken place it's just that you didn't see the angle of approach that was possible when you started the project you didn't have enough groundwork Mm -hmm. um and so that that's a really good way to keep yourself flexible and keep yourself from going crazy um, it's also been, uh, it's, it's been really helpful to me these past couple of years because I was a, a big Breaking Bad fan, um, and an even bigger Better Call Saul fan. Better Call Saul, yeah. I think is, is, uh, one of the most, uh, fascinating and successful, uh, writing experiments in the history of, of any entertainment medium. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it, it's amazing all the things it did that should not have been doable. The fact that it's, uh, you know, a, a genuinely mystifying and completely involving prequel 
uh, which goes to interesting places, despite the fact that you know ninety percent of what must happen by the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and they 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 took that and they turned it into a strength. But uh, they also, you know, when when you look at the behind the scenes featurettes and you watch the interviews with the creators, you you begin to realize that. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul look like they have been intensely planned out in the smallest detail from the very beginning, and that that's not even remotely true, that there are major characters in both shows that were only supposed to be there for one appearance or to do one function that then got brought back in um, because the creators realized, you know, either they'd found a perfect actor that they, they did not want to discard or that it opened up a storyline that they hadn't previously realized could be explored. Um, so just just the fact that so much of these incredibly uh, obsessively detailed and beautifully wrought stories over 11 seasons of television um, were fortuitous accidents or yeah. sprang from experimentation or simply were not planned in advance at all. Um, it's amazing, and I think it's a little bit heartening. You know, you 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 really ought to realize that, um, despite what a lot of bad Goodreads reviews will say, um, the the reader really can't tell what your mental state is or was. You know, when a reader yeah. is reading something That's you've written, right. they don't know how you really felt about it a year ago or yeah. two years ago or three years ago, because yeah. you yourself may not remember it. Um, mm-hmm. I have a, another writer friend of mine uh, at, at a workshop once said something to the effect of once a book is done, uh, if, if I look at it five or six years after I wrote it, I know, you know, in a, in a vague sense that there were parts that I hated and there were parts that I loved and mm-hmm. flipping through the text. I can't tell which is which I don't know, yeah. uh, you know, which parts I it, it all reads the same to me now. And I guarantee that it's the same for readers. And if the reader doesn't think so, they're deluding themselves because telepathy isn't a thing. Um, you know, so the, uh, an awful lot comes out in the wash. Um, and, uh, and we, 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 as writers tend to get credit, uh, for being, you know, Ooh, planning geniuses. That's amazing. You know, how could you have possibly, uh, seen that coming and set it up three books in advance and nine times out of 10, the answer is I didn't, the, the yeah. answer is just, I, I got lucky or, you know, it was a stupid idea and I ran with it or the book was due to be handed in in two days and I was writing furiously <laughs> to make the deadline. Um, you know, yeah. Desperation and planning look an awful lot uh, like each other yeah. from a distance. There's a, there's a yeah. section of the lives of Locke Lamora, roughly 80 pages long, that was written in 24 hours. Wow. I, uh, wow. I, I can't do that now. I could do that when I was 26. <laughs> but um, no, I, I there's an entire section in there that I was I was desperately behind schedule on. And I knew what I wanted to do, but I just had not succeeded in doing it yet. So I, I, I took the whole thing apart and I just, you know... Uh, word processor goes burr. Um, <laughs> you know, took nearly twenty-four hours and spat that sucker out in one gigantic marathon of writing. Um, it's it's there. I even I couldn't tell you exactly where it is. It just blends into the mm-hmm. landscape. I'm not saying that that's how everyone should. You, you you should not plan to do that. I'm just saying that it will happen. Um, it will happen. Um, dramatically, and it will happen less dramatically. You know, it it'll, it'll happen. Uh. In, in slow and subtle ways, too. Um, so, you know, planning is great, um, but but leave room for flexibility because flexibility happens. 
Yeah. I, I just wonder if linked to that is is the question of of revision and and drafts and things like that, where you will be obviously, or normally people are able to to smooth those things out and perhaps make things that look amazingly well planned you know, seem like that thanks to revising drafts and things like that. Are you someone that that gets quite a clean first draft or do you go through a number of drafts before you're you've got the finished product? Um clean ish and you know I'm 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 I am one one benefit of 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 being old rather than being a, a newly hatched tadpole is uh i i am more patient these days and i am more cognizant uh, i mean there's a there 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 is an element of carelessness and and recklessness to, i mean i'm 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 very proud of the lies of Locke lamora but there's parts of it that are that are sloppy um there's sloppy mistakes here and there and there's things that i would have done differently i mean there's there's always things that you'd do differently if you wrote any given book at a different mm-hmm. point in your life but there's definitely stuff that i would change on what i think is an objective care level um, and I've steadily worked at those bad writing habits, um, to, to a point that like there, there's, there's going to be, a, there's a conspicuous prose difference between parts of lies and say Republic of Thieves. And there's a, another conspicuous sea change, uh, between that and, um, uh, Thorn of Emberlane in that I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more fastidious and I think I'm a lot more conscious about the effect that I want to, to draw out. I think I've, I've finally arrived at an understanding of what I want to be doing with my prose mm-hmm. um, and, you know, where I want it to be, you know, more or less for what I hope to be the rest of my career. Um, so, you know, sloppiness is a thing that happens. Uh, it, it, it's, it's unavoidable, but you know, that, that, that is the magic of, of the second draft. I mean, you can even be really obnoxious about it if you want, you know, sometimes manuscripts are littered with things like insert cool battle here mm-hmm. or, <laughs> you know, solve problem here. And, you know, that's always a real present to find something like that. That's a real treat from your past self. You know, when your past self puts a little note that says, please solve insoluble problem <laughs> yeah. here, uh, and then turn <laughs> manuscript in. It's like, thanks. Thanks, asshole. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh you know it's uh it's it's always worth remembering that you know everything everything uh you see in the arts world um can benefit from the editorial process i mean some movies are completely built into successes in the editing process you know mm-hmm. there's there's endless debate mm-hmm. as to whether star wars is a film that was conceived great or edited great um, and there's a strong thread of argument for the possibility that this was edited great, that actually Marshall Lucas played a much bigger role than is generally credited, that uh, this is a, a a hot mess that was assembled into something that turned into, uh, you know, an all-time classic. Um, editing is, is, is in itself a form of magic. And the thing is, it it, it gives the impression that all the people uh, involved in a production or, you know, whether that's one person writing a book or 300 people making a movie were completely on fire all the time and perfectly smooth and and perfectly, you know, um, blessed with, 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 you know, wit and insight when actually what it means is that they had nine to 12 months to work, you know, people who occasionally people, this is, this is me tooting my own horn. So take it with a grain of salt, but people will sometimes say things like, God, I really love the dialogue. The things that Locke and John say to each other are really clever and God, you must be witty. And me, no, uh, no, I'm, I'm kind of an idiot. Um, 
But yeah, no, the the, the 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 tremendous advantage I have in terms of, of wit and wisdom is that I can spend 12 months thinking something up that Locke has to say in three seconds. Yeah. You know, yeah. that that's yeah. the big secret is, is that he gets the compressed benefit of this slow ticking potato that is inside my skull. Um, you know, and on a long enough timeline, anyone can come up with stuff that, you know, the, the, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, the spirit of the staircase as the French would have it, you know, those, the, 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 uh, the, the perfect thing that you probably should have said that you think of, you know, three hours later. Well, I mean, but the, the beautiful thing about being a novelist is all that stuff just goes in the hopper and you can put it into the mouths of your characters and people can say, oh, how witty, oh, how brilliant. And, you know, meanwhile, you're sucking your thumb back at home not knowing what day of the week it is, or at least that that's my experience. <laughs> Looking forward, um, there's been an announcement of three novellas uh, coming out. What can you tell us about them? Are they, are they due soon? Are they, you know, are they, are they in the pipeline? Um, yes. A little, little baby untitled Lynch number one, because I'm, I'm, I'm so uncharacteristically stymied for a title for this damn thing. I'm, I'm not used to working on stuff that doesn't have a title. I'm, I'm used to having something very firmly in mind. Um, even if it's just a placeholder, um, and then it's it's little siblings, uh, the Mad Baron's mechanical attic and the Choir of Knives. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be seeing at least one of them in the coming year. Um, hopefully more than awesome. that. That's great. And- um, and I'm 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 hoping that you know maybe just maybe um because I've I've been I've been gnawing at this problem for for months now. Maybe I, I just maybe might be able to conjure up a title sometime pretty soon so we can at least announce that and say, you know, because Untitled Lynch number one is a really shitty title for a novel. I don't know <laughs> if my publishers have ever uh, told anybody that, but it's true. It really is. Um, it's it's a great name for a contract, poor name for a bookshelf. Um, but, and I, I don't know why. I just I haven't been able to come up with something. Um, is, is the title, because sometimes we've spoken to authors where, you know, authors will have a great well what they they view as a great idea for a title but then the publisher will come in and say no that's not a great title let's use this one instead i mean have you always had the 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 control over your your title oh yes yes Mm -hmm. um i i mean the um no one has ever really had a complaint about any of my titles so far um i suspect that i mean on the other hand, my, my editors have never shied away from giving me their opinions, commercially mm-hmm. or artistically. I mean, no one has ever handled me with kid gloves in that respect. Um, I think that mostly we've just been sort of aesthetically congruent um, in our, our taste in titles. Um, and, you know, maybe someday if I screw it up enough, uh, someone will, will take me out behind the woodshed and say, no, bad Scott, can't do that. Um, but part, of my, part of my problem is, is that uh, Michael Shaben, damn him. Um, he wrote a short novel uh, years ago called Two Gentlemen of the Road, uh, which is actually about con artists and vagabonds, mm-hmm. um, you know, taking a long road trip. And it's like if if he hadn't named his damn book that, that would be a perfect, perfect <laughs> title for the for the first novella. And that's one of the things that I'm having trouble getting around because in my head I keep thinking Two Gentlemen of the Road. Wait, no, that's a Michael Shaben novel. Yeah, you know, I. I <laughs> I, I would probably sell a lot of copies if I named it the Eye of the World or the Fellowship of the Ring, but you know there are issues with doing so. So, <laughs> got to come up with something original. And are, are you able to say how Thorn is is coming along? Thorn of Emberlane, the next uh, full novel in the series. Um, Thorn, I, I think at the moment is actually in a, in a pretty happy spot. I've uh, you know, like I said, I've been pretty open. 
um, in, in the last couple months about the fact that um, I, I've, I've had some major, major drug-related success in terms of my, my general and specific anxiety. And um, I've, I've been uh, working very hard uh, in, in what you might call a freshened mental state. Which, which again, so I, I hate sounding so overly dramatic uh, about this shit. Um, so I, I apologize if I do. Um, but it's just it's hard to describe it in other terms. And uh, you know, just the 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 only weirdness I've been discovering in the past couple of months is that you know I'm, I've been working for the first time in in more than a decade without this constant weight of you know just brutal asthma attack level anxiety weighing me down. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I'm I'm finding that that its absence is something to contend with, as as weird as that sounds. Um, you know, I, I I thought that if I the other day I had a thought that if I ever write an essay about this or try to explain my thoughts about it, the title is going to be something like "Oh, great! Now I'm haunted by the fact that I'm no longer haunted." Um, but you know, it's 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 one of those things where it's like my my entire work process, my entire life process for. You know, since my since my divorce, you know, in in 2010, uh, has been uh, it, it's it's been in the company of of horrendous yeah. you, you know anxiety attacks and uh, and you know they they obviously they got in the way, but the thing is they were also omnipresent and just the fact that they're like you know convalescence from an illness is is a weird time. You know, the absence of a pain that you've had for a lengthy period of time is a strange new sensation. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we learn to to operate. We learn to function in certain ways. Uh, you know, we, we have, um, you know, learned behavior states. And uh, when you remove something that has been uh, so intrinsic to your, your, your you know, your, your mental and emotional health or so detrimental to it for so long, it's just it's it's weird. And it's. It's been very strange operating on an art and craft level where there's nothing else there except me, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the constant press of anxiety on top of everything else. It's like, wait a minute, it's just me. And so everything that worries me, everything that attracts my attention, everything that gets in the way is is now at for the moment just me grappling with my art and my craft just me looking at my prose trying to make artistic decisions about it uh you know in the absence of this black cloud that lowered over everything for the better part of 10 plus years and as weird as it sounds as wonderful as it has been it has taken some getting used to you know just 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 being kind of in a here by myself in a quiet head um not having that 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 shit just constantly haunting me um it's, yeah i mean it's it's the same you know it, when you've carried something like that around with you for so long it, it's always going to be the absence of it is going to be a big deal it's it's the same as you know i'm thinking of interviews with people that were that were hostages for years and then get released and they feel a horrible even though they're in a better state now they've got that getting used to everything again is is obviously a very difficult thing to do and you have to kind of readapt to it i think so yeah yeah it it is you know it's uh it's 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 something that happened it was you know in in many many ways it was a part of me in many ways it is a part of me and you know there's 
there's no getting past that. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a weight that's gone. But, you know, if you've, if you've gotten used to, to walking under, you know, 40 pounds of additional weight Mm -hmm. for 10 years, suddenly when it's removed, you kind of need to learn how to walk again. You need to learn how to move again. And I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I have found myself surprised by this. You know, I, I, I've been through this process before with other stuff and it's like, oh shit, it's happening again. So, you know, I, I, I'm not saying this by way of, you know, oh, this is a weird complication. I'm saying, oh, this is, this is actually kind of wonderful. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm just in kind of a weird headspace at the moment where, where everything is great, but I don't entirely know what the hell I'm doing at the moment because I'm still kind of grappling with everything being pretty okay yeah if no, that makes sense no it so it, it's the it's the best possible discombobulation i could want but um but basically it also means that you know even though i've been increasingly happy with every iteration of thorn of Emberlane, i feel like the decisions i'm making about it now and uh, the judgments i'm rendering on it now are probably the clearest and the most accurate that I've I've ever made. And and once they're made, I I think I'm I'm just going to then I'm going to chain myself to the floor and let it go and mm-hmm. let it be done. Yeah. And 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 that that's gonna have to be it. But um yeah I I I'm I'm I, I don't know how to I, I, I don't mean to whine. I, I, I don't mean I, to, to express are. that, you know, like, like this is, this is miserable. This is not miserable at all. This is, this is great. And I'm having a great time. And I think it means really good things. It's just yeah. very strange. Yeah. No, that yeah. it does make a lot of sense, but I'm g- glad that it, it, you are feeling that discombobulation in a way. Um, and we're all eagerly looking forward to Thorn whenever, whenever it arrives. So. Um, that's great. And uh, b- before we before we finish the main questions, uh, I just wondered: Would you ever want to write in a different format? Would you ever want to write a screenplay or something like that? You know, I, I um, when I was a teenager, I wrote a screenplay. It was it was kind of the first lengthy project I ever finished. Um, I wrote a, a screenplay for a really bad cyberpunk movie um, that I was going to shoot on video with some friends of mine and. Uh, we, we we never did this because wrangling high schoolers is uh, just you know the, the most difficult thing on earth. But um, miracle of miracles, I actually finished the script. Um, I was I was discovering film at that point. I'd, I'd be you know I, I'd become a a, a big um, connoisseur of movies and and you know would would rent them every weekend. And I was you know when I was sixteen seventeen, I was finally free to roam and I I I could drive the car and I could go out and I could see movies my parents wouldn't take me to. So the world was just opening up in a lot of ways. So, you know, writing a screenplay then was very exciting. I don't honestly know if I could want to do it these days. Um, and it's, it's, it's weird because I, I know several writers that absolutely flourish in the screenplay medium. Um, Mm -hmm. like, uh, my buddy Saladin Ahmed, um, Mm -hmm. who was, was not having a great time, um, in the prose world, despite the fact that he's a brilliant prose stylist, um, discovered for whatever reason that writing scripts for comic books was something that he could do with clockwork professional regularity and, you know, exist in that environment as a completely reliable creator in a way that, like, I just, I don't think I could. I, I mean, I, I read the, these scripts, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Sandman fan. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I read 
uh, now and then, you know, screenplay excerpts from movies or TV shows that I really like. And they are fascinating artifacts, but I'm not entirely sure that I'm clued enough into that process or, or want to be to be able to to turn out a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if someone were to, you know, put me on, po- on, you know, on point about it and say something like, you know, we'll give you half a million bucks to write a screenplay. <laughs> okay. I, I feel that, you know, that's a bag of money is a valid artistic motivation. Um, but, you know, b- like barring that, no, I, I don't write screenplays for fun. Um, and uh, it, it's something that I, I, I maybe kind of want to do. It's a bucket list item rather than an, ooh, mm-hmm. I'm very excited to do this as a sideline. Um, there's a couple different styles of prose that I would like to play with um, sooner rather than later. Um, and uh, game design and game writing is also something that I, I, I really want to play with. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's possible that my my subsidiary interests have just kind of shifted over time from yeah. screen and script writing to to other stuff. <laughs> What was the last book that you read? Uh, the last book that I read, which I was uh, crowing about on Twitter, uh, is a book called uh, The Auctioneer by uh, a woman named Joan Sampson. Um, and it's a, it's a novel. It's it's an American... It's, it's sometimes pitched as horror or quasi-horror, though it's not actually mm-hmm. a supernatural horror novel. It's, uh, it is it is a suspense novel. It's, uh, it's, it's an almost... Flannery O'Connor meets Shirley Jackson in New England sort of uh, physical suspense and social suspense. And uh, it's just, it's, it's an astounding book. Um, It's, it's, it's harrowing and uh, it's, it's relevant uh, to everything around us after 50 years. And it's a, it's a shame. Uh, The author, Joan Sampson died uh, very young. Uh, She had a brain tumor. Um, and she passed away literally just weeks after the book was published. Oh, and, uh, and, you know, that was, that was a tragedy. And based on, on just the sheer firepower of the auctioneer, I mean, we were all robbed mm-hmm. clearly. Um, I mean, the, 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 the woman would have really been something. And uh, the book, uh, I mean, the, the book was a, a minor sensation at the time and there was discussion of making it a movie and it was, uh, you know, on the bestseller list for a little while. Um, and then kind of faded into obscurity. And there's 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 been a concerted effort on the part of a couple people to kind of bring it back into the spotlight and get it reprinted. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, yeah, I, I I I didn't know what to expect going into it. And I found myself just absolutely flabbergasted just by by how powerful and infuriating and harrowing it was. Um, so so, yeah, the auctioneer awesome. and um, the the other thing I was reading simultaneously was uh I, I'm I'm finally reading uh, Rabbit Run by John Updike. Uh, so that's oh, yeah. my that's my my hoity-toity literary note. Uh, <laughs> John Updike, who is, uh, I mean, at, at least at the time he wrote this novel, uh, just a, a prose stylist uh, that will will make your eyes pop open as wide as dinner plates. I mean, there are, there are, there are sentences in this novel to just make me, oof, good lord. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm having a good reading week. It's been it's been been good stuff. Excellent. Nice. Uh, what about the last film that you watched? Uh, the last film that we watched was Prey. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really liked that. Prey, that which was, was yeah, really, which was, was really a lot of fun. A nice, yeah. you know, not not perfect. Could have been finessed. In, like, it could have been finessed in a couple of ways to, to make it, I think, uh, 
an all-time classic but you know what it's a it's it's a very good very brisk very mm-hmm. charming movie great cast great atmosphere beautifully shot good ideas really amusing doesn't outstay its welcome just a you know yeah. a, a charming movie of the sort that i wish they made more of these days yeah i totally agree yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, what's the last tv show that you watched or are watching at the moment uh i, I finished uh, better call saul like i said which mm-hmm. which left me staggered yeah. um and uh i uh uh, my my wife and I are currently watching. Uh, we're watching Ms. Marvel, which we are really enjoying, which we find extremely energetic and charming. Um, nice. We are watching uh, Star Trek: uh, Strange New Worlds. Oh yeah, uh, Just which we, that, we've actually, almost finished. Which is dumb as a box of hammers, but incredibly charming. I love everybody on this show. It is loads of fun. It is Star Trek that is trying to be actual Star Trek. So yeah. I forgive yeah. it its faults. Because it's just goddamn, it's just it's fun and uplifting and and pleasant and uh, yeah, I thought it was the best new trick they've done since they came back. To me. Oh yeah, it's it's so much fun. It's so nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, and shit, what else are we? We we recently See. watched um, Julia, which is an, an eight part series. I think it's an HBO limited oh, series yeah. about yeah. Um, uh, the first year of. Uh, uh, the the existence of uh, the French chef Julia Child's yeah. uh, TV series that made her famous, and it, it's a it's a shockingly good series. Brilliantly acted, everyone in it is wonderful. It's heartfelt. It's chock full of publishing jokes because it it has prominent uh, uh, guest roles for editors and publishers, um, and it's uh, you know it it speaks a lot to the creative process, and it's it, it's it, it's it's full of stuff that uh, creatives in any field will look at and go, oh shit, I feel personally attacked. Um, <laughs> I was I was really pleasantly surprised. It's a really 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 nice. good series. Excellent. Um, before that, uh, Midnight Mass. Uh, that's uh, Mike Flanagan's yeah. uh, last. Uh, uh, it's a seven part um, supernatural horror. Uh, uh, I, I think the term is limited series, not a mini series, not a series, limited series. Yeah, um, that's, that's on my list to watch. It's it's superb. Yeah. It's it's great. Yeah, it's uh, it's it. beautiful. It's brilliantly acted. It's sharply written. It's it's beautifully shot. It's it's uh, it's the it's it's a, it's an adaptation of a Stephen King story that never existed. It is the most cool. Stephen King story, non Stephen King thing that is. It, it's it's perfect. The story of a you know a small New England town that is haunted not just by literal monsters but by yeah. its 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 history. Yeah. And uh, I I was I was absolutely spellbound by it. I think it's it's absolutely fucking great. Midnight Mass. I recommend unreservedly. Excellent. Have, nice. have you watched so the Sandman yet? Oh yeah yeah we we did finish the Sandman uh, last week. Um, I, I wasn't sure how I felt at first, but I honestly I liked it more and more and more as the season went on. And I wound up thinking that it was, you know, in in as much as it's always going to be impossible to to make something that is both completely inviting to a new audience and completely satisfying yeah. to the existing yeah. audience, because yeah. I've been a Sandman fan for thirty years now, um, I I I think it has many more high points than it does points to quibble with. Uh, the cast is excellent, absolutely excellent. Um, and basically, I, I I had no more no more qualms or concerns by the time we got to the bonus episodes. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I I, I absolutely love the music. 
Um, the, the sense of atmosphere is very good. Uh, the actors playing the endless are yeah. excellent. Yeah. Um, I, I saw a random comment on YouTube to the effect of, gee, it was nice that uh, Desire could find the time to uh, take a break from work to play themselves in the miniseries. <laughs> I, I, I quite agree. I I was nice. generally very, very chuffed, and I, I hope it gets uh, a continuation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And actually, on TV shows, it, it has has there ever been any chance of... of- Locke Lamora appearing on screen in any form at all? I believe we, we are on our... We, we've been through four rounds of optioning. Uh, Warner Brothers optioned it to try to make it a theatrical movie back mm-hmm. in 2006, 2007, and it's probably for the best that nothing ever came of that because the material really doesn't fold into that box very yeah. neatly. Um, and the the cinematic moment they were trying to meet has has long since passed. They were looking for another Pirates of the Caribbean esque PG thirteen fantasy franchise, and, and I, my material was never going to provide that. Come on, guys. No. Um, but no, it was it was it was fun at the time. You know, I I, I got paid, so so at least there's that. Um, every option uh, discussion since then has been predicated on the idea that it's going to be a, a, a TV series or a streaming series or a limited series of some sort, which I think is a much more natural fit for the material. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So some, I mean, some of those have been very, very interesting. There've been some, some really committed and um, you know, uh, genuinely creative people involved. And I've had a lot of good conversations, um, but they've just never gone anywhere, uh, you know, economically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I, I wish I could drop hints and wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and say, boy, there might be something right around the corner. At the moment, there's nothing really exciting cooking. I mean, that could change tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. but I'm not sitting on any gigantic visual adaptation news, alas. And, well, you know, it's it's also entirely possible that, uh, you know, once more of my stuff starts getting out, um, that uh, that certain floodgates might open in that respect as well, because I think there's... Uh, there, there, there's probably a lot of uh, of fairly reasonable trepidation around undertaking uh, the adaptation of an unfinished fantasy series mm-hmm. for some reason at the moment. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, no, no big news, but it it, it it's been tried uh, and it will be tried Excellent. again. I hope, fingers crossed. Well, fingers nice. crossed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, the the very last thing we always do is a super quick fire either or, uh, and I, I always say there's no right answers apart from one. But we'll, we'll start off with. Uh, <laughs> A Song of Fire and Ice or The Witcher? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I'm, I, I, I'm much, much later to The Witcher than I am to A Song of Ice and Fire. So, on, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm charmed by the TV series and I, I, I love all the actors. And I, th- I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very... The TV series is an outstandingly fun hot mess that captures yeah. a certain sword and sorcery sensibility. That, yeah, yeah, d- d- yeah. Don't, don't expect, you know, lengthy narrative coherence. Expect fun, stupid yeah. fun. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's yeah. atmospheric great. Uh, nice. Loads of fun. But uh, but in, the, in, in that equation, I'm Song of Ice and Fire. Cool. Nice. nice. Uh, TV or cinema? Oof. Jeez. Um, I don't know if I can I can pick one. I, 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 I love I love the sensation of being at a movie, of being in a cinema, yeah. of you know, the the, the darkening screen yeah, and the and yeah. the ritual. I mean, you know, the and the yeah. pandemic has taken that. that from from us for, you know, a couple of years mm-hmm. now. I really haven't been able to do that. But like even movies that I wasn't necessarily really looking forward to, you know, like I, I, I see nearly every Marvel movie. I don't I, I think of Marvel movies as fun movies to see once. Yeah. 
I don't obsess over them past that. But, you know, they are an awful lot of fun to see with an... Ex- we live uh, right across the street from a college. So our, our little uh, theater in the area is usually, like, on opening night for a Marvel movie or a science fiction movie, the theater will be chock full of kids, you know, mm-hmm. 20-year-olds. And, vi- you know, vicariously watching them completely lose their shit. You know, the characters they love and yeah. the deaths that they don't yeah, expect yeah. and watching their emotional reactions and watching them tear their hair out. I it's it's very difficult to simulate that. So I guess I would say cinema by a hair. OK, <laughs> okay. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Oh, Night Owl. Oh, God. No, I I, I trend <laughs> toward Batman hours, uh, you know, whether I like it or not. I'm constantly trying to be a little more human. But no, let, I mean, left to my own devices, I'm, I'm completely a middle of the night person and I have been my entire life. Cool. Cool. Uh, music or no music when you write? Oh, music, 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 music. Nice. And uh, last one, real book or ebook? 90% of the time, real book. Um, I have finally, after a number of years of trying, become enamored of my Kindle because nice. I, I've discovered the situations where I prefer it to physically holding uh, a, a real book. 90% yeah. of the time, I'm still going to be an analog man, though. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's uh, Tarek's wrong answer. That's he, the one I always he, I always push for the ebook one. But he always wants people very to see people agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've reconciled myself to actually enjoying the experience a little bit here and there because I used to just not be an ebook. I'm I'm just old enough that like I'm still very archaic in a couple of respects, <laughs> and and I'm 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 a late adopter of ebooks, but um, but I've I've I think I've finally found my niche. That was a really fun chat. I really enjoyed that. Such a nice guy and some really fascinating hints and tips, I think, for people out there. And, yeah, definitely. You know, and what an interesting way to get into the industry. You know, writing on a forum, putting something out there, and then and then from that little seed, this massive Yeah, amazing to be picked up when he hadn't even... You know, that's basically all he had written of Lokomura and, and to be picked up at that point and then obviously go into the success that he's had. Incredible. Um and also, I thought it was interesting because you know he said that the character of Locke was almost born out of a character that he'd been playing in an RPG uh, right. game, and you know those differences because some people do sometimes think, oh, I'm playing, you know, a great, I've created this great D and D campaign. Could I just turn this into a book? But you know, definitely it can help, as he was oh, saying. Yeah, but also, sure. there's massive differences between fiction and a game system. And you know, I thought he was quite good at explaining what those what those differences were there. Yeah, no, it was a really interesting chat, and and his his kind of openness about his mental health issues was 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 really mm-hmm. refreshing, I suppose, as well, and, and and the impact and the changes that he's he's felt, and how that's impacted him as as, as a writer of the last. Yeah, years. absolutely. I mean, first of all, just great that he is, you know, personally um, found some medication that's helping with that, and and that you know. Regardless of the writing, that's great news. But yeah, yeah. also, totally understand what he was saying about having lived with that anxiety for so long. It's now a new process of trying to get used to not having it there yeah. as well. Yeah. So, um, but it sounds like you know things are on the up, which is great. And you know, I can't, I really can't wait to read the next 
part of of Lochlamora's story, whether it's in the novellas or, of course, the fourth book, which yeah, we will hopefully see soon. There's a lot more stuff coming in this world for fans of it, I think, which is always fantastic news. Yep. So thanks very much to Scott for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate the time uh, that he took to do that. And obviously, if you want to buy his books, we'll put links in the podcast description. But next week, we're staying in the world of fantasy. Yeah, next week, we're chatting with Richard Swan, uh, who is a pretty massive fantasy author with The Justice of Kings. It's mm-hmm. the first book Huge of his debut. Art of yeah. War trilogy. And he's an interesting guy, really nice guy, really interesting stuff. And he's billed as a debut author. Um, and he's someone who actually had self-pubbed some sci-fi yeah. books before. So that in- interesting way that the publishers market you, you know, depending on how they want you to be seen by the public when you have a book coming up. Yeah, totally. It, it, that was that was fascinating because I think, you know, these sci-fi, he'd written quite a few sci-fi books and yeah. self-pubbed them. And then, yeah, treated as a debut, obviously gets onto the Sunday Times bestseller list as well. So, um, yeah, we chat to him all about that. And, yeah, you know, including including the tactics that you can use to get onto the Sunday Times yeah, bestseller list. Right. How to game the system. Exactly, which which was very interesting in, in and of itself. So, yeah, he, he's a really fun guy. It's another great chat. So please do tune in for that one next week. But before we go, I haven't said this for the past few episodes, I don't think, because, <laughs> because they were pre-records. But if you enjoyed the episode, please do take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is, because these things really help us to continue to get great guests on the podcast. And of course, if you would like to get in touch, you can always drop us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one. I'm going to jump in here because, of course, there is minor issues happening with with Twitter at the moment as well. Elon Musk alert. um, So you can still get us on Twitter, obviously, and we will still be there till the bitter end. But um, (laughs) for those of you that have migrated across to mastodon which i know more and more people are and especially uh, there's a good community of writers there and um, we are at page one pod at writing dot exchange so please do give us a follow drop us a message there we'd love to chat to you there and as i say it does seem to be a really great burgeoning writing community on that app whether or not twitter succeeds in in surviving yeah. <laughs> at this point yeah, as, as as you see, we'll be there in the in the wastelands, just yes. chatting to the three headed lizards. But yeah, it's always good to have more more spots to chat writing for sure. Um, one of which is always email, of course, which you can send as an email by uh, sending that email to. Oh, I can't believe I'm saying this. So send us an email to podcast at writegear.co.uk. It, it has been a few weeks since you had to <laughs> remember that. With this part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, but yeah no that's great we'd love to hear from you on any of these formats um, please do get in touch we, we love to hear guest suggestions as well so if you've got any of those as well please yeah, let us absolutely. know but otherwise have a great week and uh, we'll speak to you next episode see you later 